We acknowledge and pay our respects to the Ghana people, the traditional custodians whose ancestral lands we've recorded this podcast on. We acknowledge the deep feelings of attachment and the relationship of the Ghana people to country, and we respect and value their past, present and ongoing connection to the land and cultural beliefs. Hello and welcome to Leveling Up, your leadership podcast. My name is Ali Clark and I'll be your host as we unpack the leadership journey brought to you by Professional and Continuing Education at the University of Adelaide. The podcast will bring you all the tools, tips and insights to help you unlock your leadership potential and get the most from your team. We'll be talking to South Australian leaders from all walks of life as they share their leadership stories and we'll support your lifelong learning with the latest leadership thinking and advice from the university facilitators to provide the essential guide to levelling up your leadership. Today's guest started her career as a registered nurse and midwife and progressed into nursing administration roles in the public and private hospitals before then joining the C-suite to lead organisations caring for our elderly. Ten years ago, she joined South Australia's largest aged care and retirement living providers, Eldercare. As the Chief Executive, Jane Pickering leads more than 1,800 staff working across more than 20 locations who together provide care for 1,200 older people. Jane Pickering, what do you think it means to be a leader? Oh, that's a, is that the beginning one or the yeah. ending question? <laughs> yeah. um, look, I think it's a big responsibility, actually, to be a leader. I mean, I think it is nice to be in the position where you can use your influence and make a difference in people's lives. And for me, it's it's being able to make positive differences in people's lives is a real is a privilege of being a leader. Do you often spend time breaking down and having an understanding of what type of leader you are? Yeah, a lot actually. Probably way too much. <laughs> <laughs> Self reflection is um, a good thing sometimes. It's not not good always. Yeah, I do. I definitely reflect a lot on my leadership style and how it's grown over the years and things I can do to improve and when I make mistakes and hopefully when I do things well. Um, I I do a lot of reflection. I think it's hard to say what sort of style you, you know, if you go academically and look at all the different styles of leadership and and, um, try and put yourself into a category that's, you know, an academic category, I'm, I'm not probably that good at that. But I am... There's a bit of reactiveness in me as well as a leader, as well as proactiveness. You know, it depends on the situation. I suppose if you were to academic, you know, put a title on, I'd be a situational leader. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you know and are you self-aware, do you think, enough to understand where you're going to be stretched and pushed? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And what sort of situation have you Oh, look, more in the stretched. So yeah. I'm, I've got a clinical background, so my background is as a nurse midwife and so in my area of business, which is the care sector, I'm most comfortable when it's obviously my my area of of care and dealing with the residents and the families and the staff. And so, so the HR side of it, the operational sides of it, is is you know where my strengths are in managing people. Finance has always been a little bit of a stretch for me, <laughs> so that's the area. And I've done plenty of study around it, but it still doesn't come to me naturally. So it is the area that I know I have to be really careful of, and that's mm-hmm. where I'm super disciplined and double-check things, tri- triple-check, ask lots of questions, make sure that I've got good finance people around me to advise. So, yeah, the, f- the finance is probably the area that's my greatest um, challenge. But, yeah, I've compensated over the years for that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you are the CE for one of the state's largest aged care providers and you talk about that care and you can I can honestly see your face light up when mm. you're talking about what it is that you do. But when you're also looking after the care of thousands of older 
South Australians might be a little bit more vulnerable. Mm. Do you feel that weight uh, and that yeah. pressure? I try. It's it's funny. I try not to think about it too much. Oh, because, sorry. No, no, no. <laughs> no it's, 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 it's okay. I mean, I should be thinking about it. So, yeah, we've got 1,200 people that are in our care and that's just the direct residents and then another couple of hundred mm. retirement living residents. The 1,200 residents that live in our nursing homes are incredibly vulnerable people. But it's not just them, it's their families as well and their extended families and their friends and and the communities around them. So if we stuff up, if we do something wrong with an older person living in one of our homes, it's not just that one person that has an impact on it. It's a whole community sometimes and we've seen that recently, Mm. the impact Mm. of it. So, yes, we've got 1,800 staff and I'm relying on them every day to do the right thing and to get it right. And so if I thought about it too much... Yeah, that sounds scary. I'd lose some sleep over it. Um, I just have to rely on the people in the organisation to do the right thing and that we've got the right processes in place to support them to do that. But we still make mistakes and there's times where I honestly think to myself... How on earth did that happen? Mm. And I get, you know, a bit cross about it. And I instinctively would just want to go and scout people. Mm. But I can't, of course. And you need to have other things in place to support people and investigate and make sure it doesn't happen again and apologise and do all the right things to address the situation. But, yeah, it is it is at times quite a burden, to be honest, and, and for the staff as well. Mm. So there's 1,800 people that work for us and... You know, sometimes things happen to staff that you think, wow, I should have prevented that happening or should have stopped it happening, didn't see it coming, why didn't I, and try and personalise it. Well, I do personalise things a bit too much sometimes. So, yeah, it is a burden, but um, there's nothing like a couple of good glasses of wine that can <laughs> fix that sometimes. <laughs> well, what do you enjoy about it then? Why... Mm. Why do you do this? Because you could, I'm sure, be involved in the care... Mm industry and not have that extra weight and that what why is it that you like leading in this area i think in some ways you're in more control when you are leading it than when you're not so i'm definitely a control freak so i do like to be in control that's right i call us (laughs) control enthusiasts yes okay yeah yeah well i'll use that from now on (laughs) i'm a control enthusiast um so i think you are in a better position when you are in charge and i decided early in my career that i needed to be in charge and it really came out of when I was a nurse on the floor I hated people telling me when it was time to go to morning tea and thought I'm actually going to be in charge of this so I can actually work out when I go to morning tea and someone else doesn't tell me when I can go to the toilet or go to have my cup of tea so um I think yeah I I think it's easier to be the leader than perhaps a middle manager or somebody that doesn't have as much control over what happens around you and um so at least then I can do what I see is the right thing to do but Mm. then you know with such a large entity Mm. um you're letting go of that control because you have to for yeah, sheer weight know, of numbers. I know, and you've, yes. you've boxed it's yourself hard, in quite nicely. Hard. I know, Ali, you've, <laughs> you've worked that out pretty quickly. Um, uh, yeah, that's probably one of my weaknesses. But, I, you know, clearly I have to let control because I can't manage care of, 18, of you know, 1,200 mm. residents and mm. 1,800 staff. So that's when you've got to surround yourself by really good people that you trust mm. and make sure that they do the right thing as well and that they'll let you know when things are happen, happening and and. You know, we always have the mantra of, please, no surprises. So just let me know what's going on. So it's a great privilege, though, to be honest. When you're working with in aged care, it's, it, you know, I don't want to be 
trite about sort of saying giving back and looking after the people that have looked after us, but it's actually, you know, how I genuinely feel that you've got these 1,200 people that really have contributed enormous amounts to our society over pretty tough years. So when you think people in their 80s and 90s, they're at that age now where they've probably seen the most change happening over the last century than any generation previously. Mm. Who knows what's going to happen in the future? But up until now, you know, they've seen a lot happen in the last 100 years and they've created a society that makes it much more comfortable and easier for us. And, you know, they, they deserve to be looked after and not just our own families but other people's families as well. So it is you know, it's a it's a good thing to do, and yeah. it actually makes you feel good about yourself and what and what you what you're actually contributing to society. And um, you know, there's other real benefits as well as being a CEO. But um, being a CEO in aged care is is a particularly privileged position to be in. I think. Mm. I, yeah, you talk about change and the change of your residents have seen in the last mm. fifty years. I mean, your sector has seen a lot of change even in the last five five years post-pandemic, within the pandemic. It's one of the most heavily regulated industries going around. So what challenges does that create for you to lead a big organisation through every change and its nuance? Yeah, look, there's some really practical sort of things you have to deal with uh, when the sector is and your organisation is going through so much change. It's actually just keeping a track of everything is Mm -hmm. is hard enough. So, again, having good people around you to make sure that you don't miss things and that you can be advised when, you know, new legislation comes through and you haven't missed it and then you've got to keep your board up to date, etc. So there's the real practical stuff about just keeping a track of everything that's going on and making sure you've got processes in place to address it. How do you lead your people through that? I think you've got to... Be steady, don't you? You can't look like you're out of control and panic and oh my god, we can't do this and this is a disaster and how we're going to manage this. You can't, you can't say that. Even though sometimes that's what I really want to say. <laughs> You've got to look calm. You've got to. It's it's that whole thing of first things first and do what you can do and do the most important things first and do what's in your control and and delegate where you can. All the usual sort of management leadership things that you're meant to do. But yeah, I think. Keep on top of the information that's coming through and making you actually well informed. And you do that by you know, good systems around you to track everything and good people around you. Then don't be immediately reactive to mm. stuff. You know, make, make sure you just look at it, view it, think about it, talk about it before you actually react. Because, you know, it's instinctive to react straight away. But you've got to sit back a bit. And we saw that during COVID. Mm. If we had have responded straight away to announcements and messages made by politicians around, you know, what we're going to do, and we would have gone, right, we better get onto it and do it. And then the next day the formal announcement came out and it was something completely different. We would have got ourselves into all sorts of trouble. Mm. So I have learnt over the last few years, just sit, wait, wait till it's formalised, think about it look at the timeframes, look at the priorities and then, then deal with it. Did you have to change the way that you managed or change the way that you led through the pandemic? Because oh, aged yeah. care, well, you, were the, you were the battleground. Mm. You guys were at the forefront of the mm. stress and the worry and the mm. fear and, and the illness, really. Absolutely, Ali. That was mm. that was the first 12 months, you know, when we had, did have... Well, well, there were sort of phases to it, wasn't there, in South Australia, and we were certainly luckier than our interstate colleagues. So... That first twelve months was the anticipation of the big, the big hit. Mm. You know, when when was it going to mm. come, and how how we were preparing for it. So we had the priv- the great privilege, I think, of having 
you know, over nearly 12 months to pr- to prepare and plan and get ready for it. So there was a lot of preparation work being done in that first 12 months. The next 12 months was just a nightmare, honestly. Wow. It was really hard. Yep. And, um, yeah, the when, when we got our first outbreak, it was actually Christmas night that I got the phone call and we had our first case at one of our sites and it was, okay, right, we know what to do. We've been planning for this. We've practised this. Let's get cracking. Let's do it. And then Boxing Day was like all on. We had three sites by Boxing Day with um, full-on outbreaks. And then we had uh, at 1.7 sites in lockdown and it was really hard. And the hardest thing was managing the families that was the really and keeping yeah. them reassured that yeah. the residents were fine and keeping the communication open and yeah we did lots of things to to keep the families you know uh, comfortable that their residents were safe and being well looked after and managing staff of course but it was also managing all of the external bodies that wanted to know what was going on so of course you know you had every man and his dog wanting to ring you to find out what was happening and report at every layer of mm. government so it was also being really firm about leave us alone let us get on with this we know what we're doing stay out of our business and so i did take control of that as the the, the leader of our emergency management response team um learning from interstate how that had really made it difficult for organizations when they had mm. you know five different groups at the site trying to work out, you know, trying to help and also trying yeah. to find out what was going on. So the local health minister knew what was happening and the federal health minister knew what was happening and, the, you know, every level of the department here in South Australia as well as the federal department knowing needing briefing because they're mm. the most important people that mm. need briefing. You know, so that was hard to manage that. When did you let the emotion hit you? Because I've heard yeah. a lot about the processes and, yeah. and being and you know and, and oh. trusting in those processes and yeah. they were ready to go. Yeah. But did you ever have that moment where probably probably not for the first few months, yeah. Ellie, to be honest, because we were so busy. But it was exhausting, you know, because I didn't have a day off for about four months. You know, it was just full on, and the team was we were working every day, you know, because it was so intense. It was probably about six months in. That I thought I'm just had enough of this. I don't know whether I can keep doing this. To be honest, it was just hard, hard slog and exhausting. Mm. So I think when you're tired and you're a bit emotional, that's when you start. You know, it, it's much more difficult. Exacerbated. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. You're a staunch advocate for gender equality, um, yes. and currently the chair of the SA Leaders for Gender Equality group, and a member of the government's SA Gender Pay Gap Task Force. I've actually spent a bit of time reading a yes. lot of articles and. And opinion pieces that you've done with regard to this. Why was it so important for you that you be involved in this type of issues and these sort of yeah. forums? Mm. Oh, look, there's lots of reasons, but I think the main reason was that I just hate to see it when natural justice doesn't occur and it's still not right for women. And if I, I thought as soon as I get into a position of power or position of influence, I'm going to use it for this. And I decided that early on in my career. So I was, I've been lucky to sort of find a bit of a niche that I can have a voice around this. And um, yeah, so there's some of it's personal as well, you know, from my own experiences, some of it's seen friends and family being um, affected by gender inequity. 
Um, but also working in a female-dominated sector, I've seen it so many times how women are just disadvantaged by their gender. Can you give us an example of that? Because I think a lot of people would be thinking, well, the care industry is yeah. predominantly women. So what are you talking about? Yeah, you know? yeah. I can see what why people would say that. Well, we know that health and aged care is about 80% female dominated. Um, when you look at the leadership positions in health and aged care, they're still predominantly held by men, uh, even though it's a female dominated sector. And Yes, women are still disadvantaged by pay, by conditions, by the way the community sees the sectors that are dominated by women. They're not as valuable, particularly the care sector. There's a whole range of things that are clear demonstrations of the inequity because it's a female-dominated sector and the women within the sector, there's still lots of discrimination, still lots of um, gender pay gap. Um, There's a whole range of reasons why women are still doing it tough in that sector. So then how do we continue to push for cultural change? Mm, yes, yeah, so if, if I knew that answer, <laughs> it would be a bit easier, wouldn't it, Ali? I don't know. I think we chip away. It's too slow, of course. And, you know, there's a whole range of things we can do from legislative change and, and making sure that there's compliance requirements around employers and what they do with their employees in terms of equity. But I just think we have to make a big noise really and keep not letting it go away just keep keep presenting the facts and keep telling the stories about women and 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 you know we've made a bit of shift I think in in the last few years but um, there's still a lot of work to do I think knowing what the issue is with, with with factual information is really important well that's what I wanted to know because you said you know starting as a nurse and making mm. a decision then that you wanted to be a leader um when did you actually know and understand that there was a gender issue as mm. such. And I mean that because mm. I would imagine, I can only imagine you know, how busy a nursing life is and you would probably spend a lot of time working in the business mm. instead of on the business, probably yeah. working and just getting your shifts done as opposed to being able to sit back and look at what you yeah. want and, and yeah. what the understanding is. So when did you know? I think it started when I really saw the the vast differentiation between the value of nurses within the multidisciplinary team in health So when you look at the value of doctors and you look at the value of other male-dominated professions within health, um, but particularly, I mean, it's pretty obvious the doctor-nurse, you know, variation. And the the nurses were the, you know, when I, because I've been 43 years in this sector, so I've seen a lot lot of change in that time. But when I was nursing, you were Mm -hmm. very, very subservient to the doctors. You got told what to do, you couldn't question, and it was very much the handmaiden role, and that just pissed me off. I thought, <laughs> I just don't want to do this. This is terrible, you know. So that was probably the beginning of realising that, gee, this is, a, this is a gender thing, you know, because there wasn't very many men at all in nursing when I started. And then it wasn't probably until I got into more leadership roles that I realised the really overt beyond nursing, you know, so once I became a um, chief exec, even a director of nursing, I could see the real difference the way women were treated in those management roles than men. And it was so obvious, Mm. you know, because I'm talking sort of late 80s, early 90s. And just some of the examples, some of the things that happened to me in those roles, I I thought, hang on a minute, this isn't going to happen. So... um, yeah, and then I thought, no, as soon as I can, I'm going to I'm going to try and do something about this. You've spoken to the media about taking up your first chief executive role about 20 years ago, yeah. um, and that was at a time when 
executive roles were that mm. male dominated. Mm. Um, is is it a stereotype to say that maybe a couple of decades ago the male leadership style would have been quite direct, A-type, whatever it might mm. be, um, autocratic? Yeah. And if that's the case, how did you manage stepping into that role where maybe you had a different type of style yeah. or did you try to match them at it yeah. for the first little while until you found your feet? Yeah, no, definitely. I, I made a definite decision early on that I wouldn't be one of those women that acted like a man. And I saw it because a lot of the, the sort of leading female CEOs, mm. you see it, I mean, they make, like they act like men. And we have very... I mean, I'm generalising, of course, but we, there are some very distinct characteristics of female leaders that are what makes them good leaders. So I had a view that, well, don't adopt the characteristics that make men shitty leaders. I don't, I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to do that as well. So Be let, a shitty leader on your own terms. Yeah, that's right. Don't, <laughs> I'm not going to adopt that. So, And it was, you're right. It was the, the characteristics like do what I say, and, you no, know, yeah, and, yeah. Um, and I'm in charge and don't question me and you know that real taking advantage of their privileged position around the way they treated staff and and we're just rude to people honestly and um, that real Boise club scene that's still around a bit but it was incredibly bad in the early 90s and um, and just you know be the good little woman and do what you're told um, that happened a lot and um, I just thought and then taking a lot of those sort of also loss of your femininity, in those roles as well. So, you know, even just the way people dressed and, you know, the makeup and, you know, not wearing certain Language. things and, mm. yeah, that and really being conscious of a lot of women of being much more masculine in the way they presented themselves as well. And I said, no, I'm not doing that. I'm still going to wear my nail polish and lipstick and, you know, I'm still going to be feminine and there's nothing wrong with being a woman and being proud of, you know, the appearance and the way I look and the way I act and being gentle and firm when I need to but being kind and caring and understanding and all the things that we know now are really good leadership characteristics and being fair, you know, and listening to both sides of the story, which a lot of them, I mean, I'm not, uh, there's some really good men out there, so and I don't want to generalise. No, no, no. But Absolutely. I tell you what, there wasn't too many when I first started. Mm -hmm. um, so they were the things that I thought, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be myself. I'm going to be authentic. I'm going to be kind. And I'm actually going to look after people. And use the use my role to actually genuinely care for people rather than tread all over them to to get what I need, you know, and to and to progress my career. Is it that empathy? Is it that kindness that is your biggest strength as a leader? Do you think? Or um, I think it's part of it. I'm not always kind, Ali. Mm. Um, I I try to be, but sometimes you can't be either. You yeah. know, sometimes you've got to make some really tough decisions that people wouldn't be seeing seeing you as being kind. Um, I think the Oh, look, I, mean, I don't want to sound, you know, like I'm reading out of a textbook, but I want to be an authentic person. I don't want to actually not be myself, my natural sort of traits. Um, I, I want them to come out as, as a leader. So I generally do care about people and I don't want to see people ruined by anything that I'm doing, you know, so I do think about that. Yeah, so maybe it is kindness, but I think it's just generally being, you know, liking people and wanting to do the right thing by people and also by the organisation. Sometimes it's a bit of a balance, you know. Well, how important then is it for you that your personal ethos aligns with whoever you work for 
and alongside. Oh, it's number one priority, Ellie. You know, I, I know I've left jobs that have been really good jobs because I didn't like the values of the company or the people around me and, you know, good money, good position, but thought, oh, no, I'm not doing this because it's ruining me. And I get actually quite stressed by that. So I can't, I can't work for companies that don't line up with my own personal values. You've mentioned a couple of glasses of red wine, yes. you know, yes, <laughs> break yes. in case of emergency sort of thing. Yes, not just emergency, Sally. <laughs> <laughs> How do you, though, find a way to stop the mind wearing how do you find yeah, sometimes that's hard that's yeah. that's one of the things that I find really hard and I do find myself lying in bed sometimes getting pretty worked up about something and I do have to sort of get out of bed and and go and you know have a cup of tea or something and and refocus to go back to bed um but most of the time I'm pretty good at switching off, you know, and I, I um, live up on a property in the hills. I've got lots of animals. I've got, we're empty nesters now, so mm-hmm. I, I can't lavish all my attention onto my <laughs> my son. But um, yeah, actually animals are my escape, really, because, yeah, right. yeah so I've got some, I've got Four little miniature goats. They're very, they're very cute. <laughs> Some alpacas and chickens, and I've got a big dog, St- oh, Stanley. He's oh. a Stanley is a Bernese Mountain so dog. So good. Yeah, he's gorgeous. So, and then I ride horses too. Right. So that's my thing. And you so, can care for these animals, I do, and, and they, they, they don't. They are lavished that's with right. care. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> yes. But also, they're not going to come back with they you with complications. That. That's exactly yeah. right. Dog does sometimes. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> yeah. And surprisingly, the goats do too. Like, they act like dogs sometimes. They're so, very clever little things. Given that and given I think a lot of people listening to what it is that you do with your role and, and you know, being mm. the chair of the SA Leaders for Gender Equality and everything mm. else, what is an average day for you? Like how do you manage that time-wise? Uh, I'm really bad in the morning, Sally. Are so you? Um, I'm, I would, could never do morning radio, that's for sure. <laughs> um, so I'm not an early starter. I've, I've had to be, of course, and there's days when I have to start early so I will get out of bed. But um, my son was also a swimmer, so I spent many, many – and I was a swimmer for many years, so I spent oh, I don't know how many years mm-hmm. getting up at 4.30 in the morning. So as soon as he stopped swimming, I thought, yay. You're making it up. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I am not – I normally get to work about nine to be honest and people are used to that and then so the day is usually back-to-back meetings I have a fantastic executive assistant that keeps me on track because I'm always running over and she's very good at managing me and my time I'm not allowed to actually have any input into my diary because otherwise I'd just make it a mess. <laughs> so she looks after it. The and ultimate in delegation, well done. It is, yeah, and I, it's hard hard to let that go, but otherwise I would just be unmanageable. Mm-hmm. Look, I try twice a week to finish at five because I go, try and go to Pilates twice a week. That doesn't always happen. Most nights I leave work about 7, 7.30, and then I'll go home and, you know, have dinner with my husband, and then I usually end up probably doing another hour or so, a couple of hours before I go to bed. But then again, like there'll be days when I, if I need to have my hair done, mm. I'll take the morning off, mm. you know. If mm-hmm. I need to go to the doctor, I'll take the day off. If I need to do something with family, I'll take time off. So I, you know, the, I'm flexible in the way I allocate my time, but and I'm not. I don't feel guilty about doing that either. And then the weekends. I mean, I'm on call all the time. Weekends is. I rarely have to work on the weekends, to be honest. I'll do my emails and phone calls and stuff, but um, I still definitely will go horse riding on mm-hmm. the weekend and not have to think that I have to stop it mostly. Sometimes mm-hmm. I have, but, you know, not generally. So, yeah. Do you think one of the next big, if not already, challenges for leaders in business is the flexibility of working and workplaces now, given mm-hmm. what a lot of us were shown 
obviously not necessarily with aged mm. care because you guys were essentially you had to keep turning yeah. up, but as leaders to be able to um, give, you know, we see Bunnings four-day mm. work week. Mm. Others are saying, no, you have to come back to the office. We're going to yeah. force you back. Is that the next big challenge for leaders within the business place, do you think? I think it's one of those things that everyone's saying a challenge, but I'm not sure whether it actually is. Definitely, we most of our business had to be on, you know, at work because we're direct hands-on caregivers. So, of course, people on roster had to show mm. up. But our head office worked from home. And I was really worried about that, thinking, wow, productivity is going to go way down. But it actually went up. So productivity went up and we didn't have any performance issues. We didn't have any new risks associated with people working from home. We didn't have more work cover claims. We didn't have more, you know, mm-hmm. any more issues really, um, any problems. So we've now continued to do that. So for any position where they can work from home, we don't people don't work from home all the time because we you know, there's now some some pretty clear evidence that working from home has some disadvantages particularly for women mm-hmm. as well so um people can choose to work from home sometimes work in the office sometimes and um and we've got everybody set up now to do that. We are very flexible where we can be in terms of compressed hours, part-time, job share. And in my experience, you get a lot more productivity out of people when they're flexi- working flexible. Mm. Mm. And you've got to be careful that if you've got somebody on three or four days a week that they're not doing full-time hours because they tend to... Or, they can't shut off. Yeah, and they'll, or they'll work you know, on their days off when they're not meant to be. So... Flexible working is fantastic. Mm. And, I mean, I work from home probably once a fortnight now. And if I didn't do that, I wouldn't get things written. I wouldn't get my board papers done, you know, things like that. So it it works really well. I have a very good office manager at home. That's Stanley, (laughs) the Bernese Mountain Dog. Very warm feet, I'd He's very happy to to manage the office when I'm at home. In your time as a leader, what do you think has been the biggest change? Look, I think... The change in me in particular, I think it's probably experience and age as well, is that I don't really give a toss anymore. So <laughs> it's a bit like if I miss someone off, I don't really care anymore. But no, no, that's not true. I do care. <laughs> I've, got to, I've got to say that, don't I? Um, I suppose I'm at the stage where I actually, and it's probably a bit of a danger getting to, you know, an age where you don't probably need to work anymore. It's a bit like, mm. oh, yeah, well, I can walk away if I, if I if want to, to yeah. um, but I don't want to yet. Um, definitely, I think I in myself I've seen a more confidence in my own ability and also not worrying so much about how people, what they're thinking of me or how, you know, how they're judging me, you know, doing my job. So, I, you know, that's definitely changed, particularly in the last four or five years. That's come with experience, I suppose, mm. and also genuinely knowing that I'm good at my job and I know what I'm doing. In the sector, oh, look, there's been so much change yeah. in the last 10, 20 years, but I think we're in a really good position now. I, I think I'm feeling more confident and optimistic about the future of aged care right now than I have ever previously. That's where it's probably I'm feeling okay about coming towards the end of my career Five years ago, I would have said, no, I, I can't go anywhere yet because we've got stuff to do. We've got things to do to, to address the, the problems in aged care. It's the first time in my career that I'm feeling reasonably confident and optimistic about the future of aged care. Mm-hmm. I guess you might have 
touched on the answer to this final question, and we do finish with the same question for yeah. all of our guests. Um, what have you learnt from being a leader that you wish you knew mm. at the start of your career? I mean, you mentioned, I guess, yeah. that confidence yeah. now. but Yeah, look, you can't be confident when you're a brand-new no. leader, can you? Um, there's things that I've learnt from my own mistakes and other people's mistakes, but and you've probably – I've said this previously – is that don't take credit for other people's work. That's a big one for me and to acknowledge the people around you because, honestly, all good leaders are good leaders because they've got great people around them. And so acknowledge them, thank them, you know, make sure they get the credit for the work that they do and don't be so caught up in in being successful. So just go on the journey and um, enjoy the day, you know, each day and and celebrate your achievements along the way. Because I think so many young leaders, you know, I see it a lot, are so hell-bent on getting reaching their goal mm. that they actually don't enjoy the process the, along the way. So just don't be in such a hurry to be, to get to the get to the end point without actually enjoying it mm. along the way. So that that would be my advice, I think, mm. to new leaders. And and don't be too up yourself, <laughs> like, honestly, because a lot of leaders and CEOs think they're really important and they're not really. So <laughs> just remember that because, you know, you might think you're really important, but a lot of most people don't. <laughs> so don't get caught up in how, how clever and important you are. They might need four miniature goats and a dog they called might. Stanley to bring yeah. them back down to earth. They, you think? They, they would have been down to earth last weekend when I was wrangling the goats to trim their feet with my husband it's like yeah, being yeah that's that's what you need to do to keep yourself down to earth. Yeah. Jane Pickering thank you very very much for your time that's absolute pleasure thanks Sally thanks for tuning in to leveling up your leadership podcast now don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and follow pace at the University of Adelaide on LinkedIn for more on how you can take your career to new heights